you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me this evening to Mark 5. Mark 5, looking at just a couple of verses this evening, verses 18 through 20. Go home and tell them. Last time we were together in Mark, we saw Jesus' we saw Jesus's interaction with the people of Gadara, a group of the region of Decapolis, which were Syrian of, or in origin, uh, though their land did, in fact, border the Sea of Galilee. There, Jesus interacted acted with a collection of spirits, demonic spirits, named Legion, casting them out from the man who they had possessed and into a herd of swine. The people who saw this great wonder ran and told those of Gadara who came, saw the man in his right mind and clothed. They feared greatly and they implored Jesus then to leave their coasts. And this is what uh, Jesus is going to do today. He is going to leave their coasts. And it is the events surrounding his departure that will form the focus of our time together. As I said, it's just a couple of verses. It's just a simple concept. We're not going to get deep. We're not going to get complicated this evening. Uh, the text will form, uh, in a sense, a bit more of a springboard for the concept that we're talking about this evening, more than direct exposition itself. But it will form the basis of a very important reminder that we all always need to hear. So we read in Mark chapter 5, verse 18, And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. So Jesus enters into the ship from whence he came. And as he does so, the man who was formerly possessed with many devils asks Jesus that he might go with him, uh, that he might be with him. This is natural. This is expected. Jesus has delivered him from the darkness of this possession, from the evil that had uh, ensnared him, and uh, little doubt that he would desire to be with Jesus. And there is even precedent for it. After all, uh, Jesus had called 12 men to follow him, and those men had left all, and they had dedicated themselves to attending to Jesus's ministry. Uh, this man is presumably asking to do the same, to go with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to follow Jesus as Jesus ministers. And now, apart from the 12, we see very few true instances of a direct command that Jesus gives of anyone to actually follow him in the sense of physically following him around as he went around Galilee and as he went, he went around Judea. Um, the more metaphorical way that Jesus said, follow me, uh, we hear all the time, right? Jesus calls men to follow him, but the idea there is not necessarily uh, speaking of, the, of the, 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 the physical, actual walking in the footprints of Jesus as he walked from Galilee to Judea and, and went from place to place, but rather the idea of obeying his commands, aligning with his example, aligning yourself with Jesus Christ, with his doctrine, with his teaching. And we see Jesus call men to follow him throughout the, the Gospels. We'll find when we get to Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus say, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is a call to follow. But at this point, Jesus wasn't carrying a cross in the, in the physical sense. Uh, so we might understand this call, call to be uh, in the idea of a spiritual following, right? To follow him, to take up those burdens that, that you would ask to be take up in order to follow him and then to follow him, to align yourself with him. And this is the call that we see throughout the Gospels. We see Jesus call those to follow him. In fact, we even see this in, in another account, which seems a little bit more, uh, probably the closest thing possible to a physical follow me, but we would still see it probably as this spiritual idea rather than a physical idea when Jesus is talking to the one that we call the rich young ruler. 
We'll get there in Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, verse 21, the Bible says, then Jesus beholding him, loved him. So you recall this young ruler came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, gives the various things. And, and the young man says, I've done all of those things for my youth. And the Bible says, Jesus beholding loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. So once again, we see this call to follow, sell all you have and follow me. And this one seems significantly more physical in nature as he calls him to sell all that he has and take uh, and follow. But we still see that idea of take up the cross, take up a burden, take up the burden of following me. And so we recognize that there's still a very spiritual aspect to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was pinpointing the fact that this young man had not done all had not done the, the thing that actually had not given all. He was still holding on to his wealth, something that was standing between him and the Savior. So there was even in this a true object lesson. And in this we see it, it was not characteristic for, for Jesus to actually compel men when he healed them, when he delivered them, or, or, or even when they asked him to necessarily compel men to... His message was not when anyone was healed, okay, now get behind me and be one of the crowd, right? That was not his message. There was a much different message and we see real insight into that message today. So in verse 19, we continue and the Bible says, "Howbeit Jesus suffered him not. So this man says, I'd like to be with you. Jesus suffers him not, but saith unto him, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. So Jesus actually told this man, no. In this sense, don't follow me, follow me, right? Don't, don't follow me physically, go follow me spiritually. Go back to your friends and tell them about me. Go back and tell them what I have done for you. And of the compassion which the Lord has shown unto him. So even though this man was willing, it was not Jesus' will for him to do what Jesus had called the 12 apostles to do, to proclaim the kingdom through great spiritual signs and wonders, to go from city to city, compelling strangers to go, to follow Jesus and to learn in that manner from him. Instead, it was Jesus' will for him to go back to his own people, to go back to the people whom he knew, to go back to the people who knew him, and to proclaim the kingdom through his testimony of personal redemption, to proclaim what Jesus had done for him, standing in that region as an open testimony to the power of God to change a life and the compassion of God that was willing to do so for him. And our final verse is verse 20. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him and all men did marvel. So this man did exactly as Jesus told him. This man did follow Jesus. He didn't walk behind Jesus along Jesus' route. He did the commission that Jesus had asked him to do, which was to go home and tell his friends. And then he published throughout all of Decapolis, the whole of the region, what the Savior had done for him. And the Bible says that in doing so, all men did marvel. And again, we're just stopping there this evening. That is it for our exposition tonight. I want to keep things very simple. The interaction between Jesus and this man is not just a historical account, though it most certainly is that. 
but it also well fits into a biblical template that we see as related to the nature of Jesus's desire for his people within the church. And this is what I'd like to think through together. The principles, effectively, of Jesus's commission upon us to evangelize. So let's walk through some thoughts together. Three thoughts tonight about that commission. The first is that the design of Christ is for the church to multiply through evangelism. By the design of our Savior, it has been ordained that evangelism is God's method of multiplying disciples. Now, as I say this, we recognize that to this point in the Gospel of Mark, most of the people who have been healed by Jesus have been told not to tell others what Jesus had done for them. But remember why. Remember why we believe that that is the case. And we're going to see it again uh, in, in, the next, uh, in, in the next chapters. We're, we're going to see uh, more of that. But we do not believe that's because Jesus is not interested in having those who have been directly affected by his ministry tell what has happened, that, they are, that Jesus is not interested in others evangelizing but we believe that that's primarily because this made it almost impossible for Jesus to do the thing he came to do. Jesus came and he wanted to go into the synagogues and he wanted to preach the good news. Jesus came and he wanted to publish these things. Now, as a part of that, he came with those signs and those wonders. He came showing the power that he had, the authority that he had. He brought the kingdom with him, the kingdom by which the blind see and the lame walk, the kingdom by which the dead are raised, uh, from the dead, the kingdom by which uh, the f food is multiplied before men. He came reflecting the kingdom. And so he came with those signs and wonders that are characteristic of the need of those in the East. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But in publishing what Jesus did, when Jesus healed someone, when, when, when Jesus did these great wonders, it brought the multitudes and they thronged him and they mobbed him so much so that he was physically incapable of actually doing what he was supposed to be doing. There were so many people that he could not even effectively teach. He had to get on a boat and push off from shore just so that he could teach without being thronged. Uh, he would go into the synagogues, but they would throng him so much that, 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 that nobody could come in, nobody could hear him, but he had to have his back to some wall or else he'd, he'd be in trouble. And so Jesus did not tell people not to tell because he did not want them evangelizing. He told them not to tell for practical reasons. At least that's, that's what we generally believe. If you have another theory, I'd love to hear it. But with this man, this man of Gadara, it's different. Now, first off, it's, th this man is not a Jew, as far as we know, right? Uh, the, 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 in Decapolis, they were not Jews. They were Syrians. That's why there was a herd of swine feeding. Uh, the Jews would not have a herd of swine feeding, uh, but, but, but they did. And so we, we recognize that they were, they were not Jewish people. Um, they're not the people unto whom Jesus was sent at this time. And uh, on top of that, they'd already asked Jesus to leave. Uh, not inherently because they rejected his identity. Of course, if a, if a city in, in, in Israel rejected Jesus, if they asked Jesus to leave, um, as was the case even in his own city of Nazareth, where he could do very little because they had no faith in him, they said, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus, as he commissioned the, the 12 to go two by two, he says, allow your peace to rest in the house. And if your peace will not be there, if they, will, if they reject your ministry, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Do not allow your peace to remain there. And so within the, 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 the Jewish nation, it made sense because the Messiah was supposed to come for them. They all knew the Messiah was coming. They were all, in theory, looking for the Messiah, that, that a rejection of him would be a moving on. 
But that's not necessarily the case with those in Decapolis. It's not necessarily the case that their rejection of him, in this sense, was a rejection of his identity as Messiah. Most of them probably didn't even know the prophecies of Messiah. They were not Jewish. But as we see in this passage, the reason why they asked him to leave is because they were afraid and confused. And they didn't understand. They didn't know what had happened to that man who was now in his right mind and clothed, who had been a man that they bound with fetters and he would break them and he was uncontrollable and chaotic and miserable and crying day and night and, 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 and harming himself in torment. And they just wanted him to go away. So Jesus was not constrained to limit the reach of the man who had been healed because he was not going to be thronged by anyone that he told. And so he doesn't constrain the man. But going back to the reason why, it's Jesus told various men in Capernaum not to broadcast his power. The whole point was that he might do more preaching so that he might be more effective in the preaching aspect of his ministry. It was not in any way an attempt to limit the message that he had to tell only to limit the crowds that were there for reasons other than to hear his message. And as we continue through the narrative of Christ and his apostles, it's apparent and very clear that it is the design of God to multiply Christ's followers through the process of those who have been saved telling others how to be saved. So just prior to Jesus' ascension into heaven, he gave what we call his great commission— we are all most familiar with the Matthew version, but in that I'm preaching Mark in this series, we'll go to the Mark version, which you have, at least if you have a King James Bible, if you don't have a King James Bible, it may be omitted, or at least there'll be a footnote saying it should be omitted. Um, but in Mark chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, we read this. Afterwards, he appeared unto the 11 as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. So as Jesus departed, he spoke these words to the eleven. At this point, Judas was, was dead, commissioning them to preach the gospel to every creature. And if we only had the gospels, we might assume that that commission was given only to the 11. As a matter of fact, there's still a, a contingency of the church that is convinced that that commission was only given to those 11, and that it was not necessarily something that, that we are called to carry out or to carry forward into the church age. Now, many of the commands that Jesus gave, the promises that he made, we would understand not to necessarily have spanned at least beyond the first generation of the Christian church. When we get to Mark 16, we'll see that the signs and wonders that are to follow them, we'll have to contend with the ideas of those signs and wonders and think through whether or not those are, are valid for today. And we'll work through that when we get there. But the fact of the matter is the idea that this great commission is only for those 11 does not conform well to the teaching that we find in the epistles by the apostles where it is made very clear that God has ordained that men come to faith through the preaching of the gospel, through the process of proclaiming and of hearing. So we read in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Esaias saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If men are going to come to faith, it's going to happen through the hearing of the word of God. Now, Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Same idea, right? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God has ordained preaching to be the means by which those that believe will be saved. Not great wisdom, not great wonders. Great wisdom might accompany preaching. Great wonders might accompany preaching. And we've seen both of those throughout time. But it's the foolishness of preaching because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Paul calls it foolishness specifically because of what he expounds here. Because for men to be convinced of great truths, there's usually a requirement of great things, right? For men to be convinced of great truths, it usually requires great things. Be that the great wisdom through philosophy and thought. This is what the Bible says the Greeks sought after. The Western world has always been a world that has been uh, convinced by wisdom. They have always sought unto wisdom. Uh, they have always sought their leaders to be men of wisdom, at least until recently. The, great, the, the Western world has been a, a world that has sought unto wisdom. In the Eastern world, has always been a world that has sought unto signs and wonders. The Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. They have always desired the signs to accompany uh, a, a message by which they know that that message is, is true. But whether it be signs and wonders or whether it be great wisdom, what God has ordained that neither of these are the source of, of the wisdom of God. God has ordained that neither the wisdom of man nor the great signs and wonders are in themselves the wisdom of God, but rather a simple and a clear message, the simple and clear gospel that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that Jesus did for me what I cannot do for myself, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not complicated. It is a message as accessible to a pauper as it is to a king. It's a message as clear to the simple as it is to the wise. It is a message as obvious to the weak as it is to the strong. And this is what God has ordained. The design of Christ is for his church to multiply. And the way that that church multiplies is by telling the gospel. 
because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the design of Christ is for the church to multiply through evangelism. And that brings us to our second point. The message of evangelism is the great thing that God has done for you. As we walk through the epistles, you know what's interesting? We don't see too much in them by way of a direct call for those in the church to be very, very active in proclaiming a particular message of the gospel. And, and, and follow me here. We know that Paul and, and, and the apostles, they went from place to place preaching the gospel. We know that people like Aquila and Priscilla, we see that in the scriptures. We, we know Stephen and these, these, these men who would go and they'd proclaim the gospel. But what we actually find by way of direct commands, we see tremendous examples of men who went out and they preached the gospel because the Lord laid it on their heart to do so and he gifted them to do so and they went out and they did so. And, and this is a, an important thing and it was certainly a part of that great commission. But what we see in the epistles, is a little bit of a different flavor of what that exhortation to share looks like. We have a great commission. Jesus' expressions of the gospel, specifically in John. Paul's expressions of the gospel, specifically in Romans 1 through 5. We have Paul's expressions that we just studied in Romans 10 and 1 Corinthians 1. But these speak of men who are sent. And they speak of men who, who, who are called to go. None of them state that all men are necessarily sent. Now, if we were to produce verses compelling believers to exercise their spiritual gifts, to grow and to build the church, we'd uh, be e easily able to find that. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, these are the passages of Scripture that we go to where we see the giftings that God has given to believers in the church to profit the church with all. These passages make it abundantly clear that God has ordained and gifted believers in order that the church might be mutually helped and strengthened and edified. And certainly within the scope of these giftings, we see particular men who are gifted unto evangelism. But then the question is, what about all of us? We know those that are gifted unto evangelism. We read in, the script, in, in, in our missionary letters that we read tonight of men who have been called unto evangelism. And we see how they have gone and they have evangelized and they are busy about that work of evangelism and they have the clear power of God to touch the hearts of men. But what about the rest of us? See, because we, we see this call, we see this, this, this necessity to spread the gospel, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But what do the epistles actually say about what that looks like for us? And I believe that, that this is where Mark 5 gives us an interesting insight from this Gadarene. Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Go to the places where you live. Go to the places that are around where you are. Reach the people that are around you and tell them something. Tell them what God has done for you. Every man is called to tell others what God has done for them. To be a testimony of Jesus Christ to the world that is around them. And as we'll see, to live in integrity and consistency with the principles of the gospel, to shine that light into darkness 
so that as we tell those that are around us, and notice that the Gadarene did not just go to his friends. He went to all that were in Decapolis, right? He went to the entire region that was around him. Everyone that had heard about him, everyone that knew about him, everyone that he interacted with, everyone that he could interact with, he went and he told them. But what did he tell them? He told them what God had done for him, the compassion that God had shown to him. You know, many times, when we want to go out and share the gospel, we say, well, pastor, I just don't have all the answers. I, I, I don't know how to share the gospel. And every year in the summer, we go through in our Sunday school and we talk through what sharing the gospel looks like. And several times we've done some role playing on what sharing the gospel looks like. And we've thought through it and we've, we, we, we've sought to give answers to questions. Well, what about when a person says this? What if I'm talking to an atheist? What if I'm talking to uh, a religious uh, a, a spiritual but not religious? What if I'm talking to a religious but not spiritual? What if I'm talking to, and we'll go through all of those scenarios and all of those things are, are good and, and right and necessary and we work, work through them, but the simplicity of the gospel is this. If you can go up to someone and tell them what Christ has done for you, then you can share with someone the gospel. Go and tell them what the Lord has done for thee and have had compassion on thee. But it does come with something else. The commission upon each one of us to tell what Christ has done for us, to share the gospel in this manner does come with something that is very clearly laid out in Scripture, very clearly laid out in the epistles for the church to learn and to understand as it relates to the manner in which we go about doing this. One of the passages where we see this is in Titus 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Paul is writing to Titus, Titus being a, a pastor. And Paul says this, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. So he is exhorting this pastor to teach sound doctrine to those that are under his ministry. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, discreet, excuse me, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. So the beginning and the end is the command to Titus that he speak these things. And the things that he is called to exhort and to teach the church is how to live in what we might call spiritual integrity. 
how to present themselves in the context of their world. Elder men, younger, uh, elder women, young women, young men, and then even servants. How to present themselves in a manner that is consistent with what Christ has done for them. Because if we're going out and we're telling what Christ has done for us, here's the operative thing about that. If I'm going to tell someone what Christ has done for me, I need to be living as if Christ has done something for me. I need to be living in consistency with that to reflect my redemption in the manner in which I live, how I interact with those that are around me, having such sound speech that those that are of the contrary part, those that disagree with me are ashamed, having no evil thing to say of me, living in such an integrity of manner that my actions adorn the doctrine of God, my Savior, and all things. And I am not saying this evening that your actions are sufficient. No, go and tell is what Jesus told the Gadarian man. He did not just walk around having been redeemed from, these, from legion and, and, and let his actions, uh, let his, his, his deportment speak the words for him. No, he went and he said, you remember me, right? You remember who I was, was. you remember what I was. Let me tell you about who I am now and why. So we are to tell, but Christian, our telling needs to be consistent with our living. Live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, Titus writes. Paul writes to Titus. Why? So that the present world can see that light through me, giving authority to what I tell them of Christ. And then I become a testimony, either unto their further illumination with the the, the hope of, of salvation by grace through faith, or even to their further condemnation on the day of judgment through unbelief. But either way, I have testified of the gospel of Jesus Christ in manner of living. And through that question, may I tell you what Jesus Christ has done for me? This is perhaps even more clear in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter is an epistle that is written to Jewish believers that are scattered throughout the empire, exhorting them into the manner of living that they need to be living in, uh, though in persecution. So Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, verses 9 through 16, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why. Which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God which hath not obtained mercy, had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. So we are called to to show forth the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to show that we who had not previously obtained mercy have now obtained mercy. But then what does that look like? I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest, Conversation is not just the words I say, but the very manner in which I live. Honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. 
as you live in a dark world and you live the light, people are going to notice. And as people notice, that is when we say, may I tell you of the great things that Jesus has done for me. Go home to my friends. Tell them how great things the Lord hath done for me and hath had compassion on me. That is what we in the church are chosen unto, unto this end, that we might show forth his praises, the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as I do so, I, with my well-doing, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And in doing so, they may by my good works glorify God in the day of visitation. And in doing so, I might just, as Jude says in Jude verses 22 and 23, with some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. As I live a life of distinction, that is what it means, making a difference. I make a difference between myself and the world that is around me, and I tell what Jesus has done for me and why it is there's a distinction to begin with. And others I save with fear. Others, I simply have to, they, they may not know me. They may not know why it is. They may not see the distinction. They may not have had, had the opportunity to see a distinction in me. They don't know me well enough. And those, I've just got to proclaim the danger, seeking to pull them out of the fire. Some might just come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Back to 1 Peter then, and this time into chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. Peter then writes this, Finally, be ye all of one mind. Having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. He's talking there about how we should interact with one another in the church. For he that will love life and see good days, quoting now from the Psalms, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And then he asks, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Have you seen a theme to the gospel's commands or to the epistle's commands as it relates to the gospel? Now, I'm not marginalizing the idea of going out and telling the gospel. We saw it there in Jude and telling the gospel to those who, who do not know us and, 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 and the cold call evangelism type of idea and just getting the gospel out to all who will hear. But Christian, when it comes to what it is that God has designed within the local church for the local church to grow, it is to grow through evangelism and the kind of evangelism that we see scattered throughout the epistles. The call that we see is that you go to your friends and you tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and you live your life before them in a manner that is so reflective of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they have no evil thing to say of you, and that they cannot help but ask you of the hope that lies within you, and then you are there to have answers to tell them of that hope. And if we're going to evangelize, let us start there. 
I am called to live in spiritual integrity, to have compassion, to love the brethren, to be pitiful, to be courteous, to bless rather than to curse, to set the Lord apart in the man, by the manner in which I live my life, to sanctify the Lord God in my heart, to be always ready to give that answer to those who seeing that spiritual integrity and wondering what it means and where it comes from, to be ready to have an answer for them. And on that day, I tell that man how great things the Lord hath done for me. I tell those who are around, never forsaking the testimony that stands behind the message. Just like the man of Gadara, the change that has been realized in my life that both compels my testimony and validates my testimony, and I go out to those that are around me and I tell them. And here's the thing, young people, young people particularly, Many people in this room are second and third generation Christians. And every time we talk through the gospel, we, we talk through that, that difficult thing, which is, I'm a second or third generation Christian. I was saved when I was very young. What testimony do I have? I cannot give the testimony of being saved out of alcoholism or, 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 or a, a major uh, um, uh, lightning strike moment. I was saved and I was, yeah, I mean, we can point to my sin, right? I stole cookies from the cookie jar and, 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 and I did things such as that, but I don't have that, that great and grand testimony. What can I do to testify of the great things that the Lord has done for me? Well, Christ has still shown himself strong in you, hasn't he? See, here's the thing. All men are sinners. And the sin that is in the darkness of every man's heart is that same sin. Whether you have been saved from those sins, having committed years of those sins, or whether you have been saved from those sins, seeing the mercy of God by which he has directed you and grown you and protected you through a salvation at a young age, it does not change the fact that Jesus Christ has done that for you, does it? It does not change the fact that Jesus Christ is the reason why you can stand before men in spiritual integrity. So tell them that. Tell them yet and still the great things that Christ has done for you. So the design of Christ is for the church to multiply through evangelism. The message of evangelism is the great thing that God has done for you. Third and finally, the calling toward evangelism is for all, but not the same toward all, or not the same for all. We have mentioned already that the prevalence of Christ's commission to go and tell rests upon all men, as we see in the Gospels and the Epistles. But we do also see, as we look in, at, at Romans chapter 10 and the idea of this call, as we look at what Jesus did through the Apostles, Right? This man of Gadara said, may I follow you? And Jesus said, no, go tell your friends. Now, the commission upon the apostles was different, wasn't it? Those 12 men that Jesus had called to follow him in that physical manner, those 12 men that were getting back on the boat with him and going back across the sea with him, they had a different commission upon them, didn't they? They had a much broader commission to tell. They were given a specific commission and a gifting to do so. And the Bible tells us that the gifts given to the church include a gift of evangelism. 
They also include the gift of pastor-teacher. And one of the things that the church has always done, and it's created a bit of a crisis for many people within the church, is to elevate certain gifts within the body and pressure people to feel as though if they fall short of that gift, that there's something wrong with them. Now, when we read the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, we see that it was the sign gifts that were this way, that everybody wanted the sign gifts, particularly the gift of tongues. And so they were all seeking unto it. And Paul says, it's fine to seek unto it, but seek the better gifts, right? And then he goes into 1 Corinthians 13. And they were all seeking after this, this gift of tongues. They had elevated it above its place within the church. So that Paul says, I'd rather speak five words in my own tongue than 10,000 in another tongue. And since the missionary movement saw its zenith in the 1800s, the fundamentalist circles particularly have kind of done the same thing with the gift of evangelism. And to a degree, rightfully so. We look upon those men whom God has used to bring many into the kingdom, from the apostles to the great evangelists to the great missionaries of ages gone by and even unto today. And I hope our time together today has made it clear that every believer most certainly does have a responsibility to share the gospel and to share the gospel in spiritual integrity. But by the same token, I also hope that as I give this message today, exhorting you to go out and to share the gospel, that you would become, that, that you would start to feel guilty about the role that God has given you to play within that. Or even that, and this is something else I think that we are tempted to do, that we pursue that gift, the gift of evangelism, at the expense of the gifting that God has actually given you for the church. As you read these letters, I didn't even read all the names that the, that, 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 that the Parfits had, first off, because they were all very hard names to pronounce, but second, because there were a bunch of them there. I read through several of the names for the Nalties. The Lord's doing great works through those men, men that have been gifted and empowered by God. And it's not to say that we cannot go out there and share the gospel. I'm not saying that this evening at all, at all. These men are, are, are here and they share these things that we might pray for them, but that we might also be encouraged by them. But God forbid that in that encouragement, you would feel guilt if you do not have the same gift that they do. God has given you a gift to serve the body of Christ. And he has intended for you to have that gift that you might profit the body withal. And not everyone in here will have the gift of evangelism. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we're praying for is more people in the church with the gift of evangelism. Because that's something that our church does in fact uniquely lack as it relates to the giftings that we find within our midst. And as Paul says so clearly in his teaching on gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 to 21, he says this, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. 
And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Not every man or woman in the body is gifted in evangelism any more than any man or woman in the body is gifted in teaching. And this does not mean that we should not be evangelizing any more than it means we should not be teaching. My desire is that every man would, 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 that, that is in this ministry, that is under, under my ministry, would be a capable teacher within a period of time after that, that, that you've been here so that you can fill a pulpit, so that you can uh, articulate the, the, the essence of sound doctrine. My desire is even that our women would be able to articulate the clarity of sound doctrine uh, so that they might teach others also. So you have people who are capable teachers and then you have gifted teachers, right? Those whom God has spiritually endowed with the power to express thoughts in a manner that the Holy Spirit uses uniquely to build his church, to, to strengthen the believer. And that man needs to identify his gifting and he needs to serve the body in the manner that he's gifted. And all of those others who are also planning to be capable teachers, but if they are not gifted teachers, you need to identify your gifting and you use the abilities that you have when the abilities are needed, but then you thrive in the gifting that God has given you for the church. In the same way, God has gifted evangelists. This does not mean that every man or woman in this assembly ought not know how to share the gospel and ought not have a burden to do so. You ought not seek out opportunities for the hope, to, to share the hope that lies within you. But then there are those who are gifted evangelists, those whom God has spiritually endowed with the power to pierce the souls of men with the truths of the gospel in a manner that the Holy Ghost uses uniquely to win souls to Christ. And that man or that woman needs to identify his gifting and to serve the body in the manner that he is gifted. And I say all of this to encourage you of two things. First, if you don't know what your gifting is, you ought to be seeking that out. And it, that's not something that you have to conjure up within yourself. And there are courses and, and, and lists and whatnot. The fact of the matter is this. If you are walking in the spirit, your gifting will manifest. You will find the way that you serve the church properly and then you can in, embrace that but you ought to be looking for it so that you can be the member that you are to be. So first I say this in order to exhort you that you, you understand your gifting. Maybe there are those within our, our ranks that are gifted evangelists, but uh, fear or uh, apathy has, has, has kept you from, from living into that gift. And God forbid that we should have a spirit of fear. God forbid that we should have a spirit of apathy by which we do not share the gospel we do not, we do not uh, uh, um, uh, respond to the burden that Christ has put on our hearts to share the gospel to the degree that he has done so. But it's also important for me when I preach a message like this to remind you that you don't need to feel guilty if that is not your gift. And I do not say that by way of excuse. You don't walk away from an opportunity where you should have shared the gospel and you didn't to say, well, this is not my gifting. That's not why I'm saying this this evening. But it has been my experience that many people within our circles, have walked around under great guilt over the, the gifting that they lack 
over the, the oh, because they're not gifted in the way that they want to be gifted. Because the preacher and the evangelist are the ones who are, have the interesting, exciting, the, the, the forward-facing gifts in the church. But those that have the forward-facing gifts in the church, the teacher and the evangelist, cannot say to he who has the gift of faith or he who has the gift of giving or he who has the gift of service, we have no need of you. Much to the contrary, each one has an honorable place within the body of Christ. And so do not feel guilty if this is not your gifting, but do not use that as an excuse to not go and tell your friends what great things God has done for you. And may God help us that we would find the balance between these two things. I always feel compelled to preach the evangelism message in this way, but I also pray that I never, I, that, 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 that God's people never walk away feeling as though I've, I, I've, I've compelled you not to share the gospel or I've sought to excuse why it is you might uh, feel like you ought to be sharing the gospel more. But I also hope that perhaps by God's grace, there can be a release from unhealthy guilt if your gifting is not the gift of evangelism. Let us be instead as Christ has called us to be. Whatever our gifting may be, may we live into that for the church. And as we have opportunity, we go to those who are our friends, our loved ones, those that are around us, those that are in our communities, and we tell them what great things God has done for us. And we validate this message that we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ by living out spiritual integrity, living in the distinctions of our faith in Jesus Christ, always ready to give an answer, doing more as we are burdened and directed to do more that we may win people to Christ because this is the method that Christ has designed that by which we multiply the church. And may we indeed be burdened to do so to multiply the church through that design that Christ has given, whereby faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.